You're listening to the Thousand Hills Podcast. In today's message, we're going to talk all about how Christians are to approach dating according to the Bible. This one is a bit different than the rest of our messages. For the sake that Christian dating is not exactly... Um, found in historical contexts, right? So uh, in the Bible times, it's more likely that you're going to be betrothed to somebody, uh, promised to be married to somebody at a young age, not going out there and checking, you know, your Christian mingle. So we're going to have to contextualize a little bit of this, not to, not, we're not bad-mouthing Christian mingle. Uh, it is a tool. So <laughs> tonight we want to start by directing our attention to recognize a vital truth, guys. So we're going to play a game, all right? I want you guys to, um, in your minds, and maybe you guys can hold up a hand. I'm not going to put you on the spot, though. Um, answer these questions. So he- here's our divide. Is this Christ or is this culture? And we're going to be looking at a couple of different questions to say, okay, is this the culture? Is this what we've been brought up in? Or is this a biblically founded Christian from the scripture? All right. Um, so let's go with our first one real quick. Um, the first one is we are called to wait and not seek out our spouse. This one, guys, is cultural. And let me explain why. This one was repopularized by a book that was released in the early um, 2000s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. How many of us know about this book? The author's name is Josh Harris, right? So they took the Christian world by storm, right? We're, when we look at the Bible, there's nowhere specifically that we are told to um, exclusively wait and not seek them out, yeah? Biblical principle-wise, yes, it is a biblical principle to wait upon God. We don't want to get ahead of God. But at the same time, this has been so concretely um, claimed and stated that we have seen a number of people who are frozen in place, um, I have known a couple of people, and I believe this maybe exacted the largest toll on people just a little bit older than me, um, but who would be in situations where they would meet somebody who was like totally doing the right things. They're in church. They're going to some small groups. They're talking about like, yeah, this is what I think God's calling is in my life, right? By all signs of the outward, they're doing good. And they would enter into the life of one of these people I know, and the person would go, oh my goodness, um, I think that they're really godly and I think they're very attractive. However, I'm not going to do anything, say anything or tip my hand in any way because if God wants it to happen, it will just happen, right? Now, that is a very holy way to look at it and there's nothing wrong if God has told you to sit back and wait, hang back a little on this one, right? But at the same time, for us to not even seek out whether or not God's will is for us to hang back or to try to engage a little bit in conversation and build a relationship um, because we think that this is the only way to do it is a flaw, right? We don't want to be strapped down to rules that are extra biblical. And this one, while it can be an example of the right thing to do, is not 100%, which is very counter to the culture I was raised in, right? We're going to go to number two. Number two. There we go. There is one person for you. And if you miss them, you'll never be happy. How many of us think this is true? This is Christian. How many of us think this is culture? Wow, this one was way more responsive. This one was less controversial. Um, great. Do any of us know where this frame of thought, that there's one perfect person comes from? <laughs> this one actually has its roots in Greek mythology, believe it or not. In Greek mythology, there was the belief that humans used to be four-legged, four-armed, One body, one head, but two faces on it. Creatures that were fierce and mighty, and the gods got scared of them and separated them. Therefore, as we walk through our lives and look for that perfect spouse, really what we were doing was looking for the other half that had been separated from us. 
Very romantic sounding. Not biblically accurate. And I'll say this though, there's a caveat here. God has a perfect will for our lives. God has things for us to do, people for us to meet, right? He has a plan in mind and he knows our days. Meaning that when we do something, it doesn't surprise God. God has a plan for us to follow. Meaning, if we follow God's plan, I'm sure there is somebody that he intended for us. But if we rebel from that, if we walk away, if we look at our youth and said, I didn't do the right things. There was a season in my life where I walked away from this and I got married to somebody else. And I feel like I'm doomed to unhappiness now because of it. That's not true. I'll, I'll let you guys in on a little secret. God's ability to redeem far exceeds our ability to ruin. Meaning there's nothing that we can take and ruin so badly that God cannot redeem it in his own way, right? So if we strayed from that perfect will, and let's say we could know 100%, we strayed so far that we did not meet that person that God had in mind for us, which we can't know, but let's just say we could academically. I promise you that if you and your spouse turned around and decided to follow after God and pursue his plan for your life and his will, that he would redeem it. That that would not be a loss, but that God would create something beautiful out of it. So if we're walking through our lives concerned that if we miss that one person, everything is all for naught, we're going to work ourselves up into a crazy, anxious state of mind. And we're not going to be obeying God. We're supposed to rest in our faith in God, not be constantly anxious, like, oh my goodness, right? Let's go to number three. Here's our third one. You cannot be a Christian and date someone who's not a Christian. How many of us believe this is cultural? How many of us believe this is Christian? This one is Christian, and I'll explain to you guys why. This isn't just a concept for marriage, but let's look at what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? How many of us know what it means to be yoked together? A yoke in the old days, especially when we're thinking about pioneers, agricultural, early America, things like that, was perhaps a wooden, right? Or wooden leather uh, um, harness that we placed around the neck. Now, the thing was that you would have usually more than one animal in this if it was pulling something heavy enough. And this team of animals was being asked to move in the same direction and to help accomplish a goal, pulling a cart, pulling a farm tool, something like that, right? Now, where they ran into trouble was if you had one really, really strong animal and one really, really weak animal, do you know what would happen? That strong animal would take more of the load and work themselves to death quicker. Not only that, but if this was a solid wooden um, um, yoke, you take something that's supposed to fit comfortably around the neck and you turn it a little bit sideways, what happens? You start to choke both animals. Not only that, but like one of you guys signed, you'll start to pull a little bit in one direction as one lags behind, right? So all of a sudden, these cornrows or whatever you're planting are going to be like, good, good, no, no, and you're going to make kind of a right angle, right? 90 degree. Now, what this was explaining to us was the fact that we are not called to be yoked or paired with people who do not have the same standard, who do not have the same spiritual strength, especially in the example of a Christian and a non-Christian. Why? Because that Christian will hold to a standard, will hold themselves to a standard, and see the world through a lens that is far different than the non-believer. In other words, the conflict that will arise because one party has a much 
stronger commitment to deep moral truths that they find outside of just what they feel is good, but in the scripture, while another holds a more loose grasp of perhaps changing moral codes or a lackluster moral code, it will lead to a lot of conflict, right? Not only that, but just like that back animal pulls the stronger one out of line, we'll find ourselves in lives that are being pulled towards compromise, being tempted with, "Mm, I guess I could get away with this, until a point where we could very easily become sideways moving instead of moving towards the goal that Christ gave us, right? This is not only a a dating idea or a marriage idea. This could also take place in business. I can know a businessman who talked about um, being in a company that he helped to uh, establish with a non-believer. And this non-believer was cutting edges, lying about costs, and trying to seek ways to put more money in their pockets than what was moral or what was fair from both their customers and on a tax standpoint, which is not great. And unfortunately, this was found out by the other partner who was a Christian, strong Christian, a deacon in his church, and it led to infighting. It led to disagreements. And at the end of the day, this Christian who realized that he could not change the heart of the business partner ended up abandoning years of work that he had put into this business, a lot of the equity that he had put into it, and got out of the business for fear that those business practices would not only run them afoul of the law, the IRS and things like that, but also would continue to pull him towards a love of money that would separate him from God. So when we look at the Bible, it's very clear that we are not called to pair ourselves up with an unequaled partner. This one is true. What about number four? It is a sin to date for a long time. You should be married. How many of us think that it is a sin to date for a long time? When we look at the scripture, there's nothing that says you can't date for a long time. Time. There are some instructions that are um, good for us to absorb, right? The Bible does not tell us that we have to urge and hurry our way through courtship into marriage. But we are instructed to not allow ourselves to be overcome with lusts and fleshly passions, right? So a couple who takes their time for good reasons, like distance, makes sense. Oh, we've been dating for five years. Yeah, but you're from the East Coast. He's from the West Coast. You guys are trying to save up so you guys can meet somewhere in the middle or one can relocate. You guys are getting everything down. You guys are obviously being respectful of one another's boundaries because you're really far away, right? There isn't the same temptation there. That's not a bad thing. That's not to be condemned. At the same time, on the flip side, if we allow ourselves to become really comfortable in our relationship and begin to slip into sexual immorality or other um, not Christian or helpful traps, then perhaps it is time to move ahead the calendar. And I can think of a pastor who said that um, he and his wife got married in three months. And everyone's like, whoa. He told this to a class because at the worship school I went to, he's like, yeah, we got married in three months. Everyone's like, whoa. He's like, yeah, I just knew myself, so just thought we'd close that door right there. I was like, well, praise God, buddy. He's like married for 35 years. So I was like, amen. Okay, I'm glad God led you there, right? But that's not really something that we need to look from the outside and go, oh no, that's definitely sin, right? Now we need to realize that most of our modern church dating culture isn't in fact, biblically based, right? Many things about the way churches think about dating simply do not align themselves with the actual biblical precedence. So I would encourage any young Christian to commit themselves to two big questions that we should be asking ourselves repeatedly. Why and where can I find this in the Bible? Why and where can I find this in the Bible are very good ways for us to extract what is biblical and what is perhaps just 
a nice suggestion, right? That works for some, maybe not others. And we have to ask ourselves, if a lot of these rules that churches echo aren't true, why do you think so many sets of rules exist? Have any of us noticed that there's a ton of rules that aren't exactly found in the Bible in a lot of different topics? How many of us have experienced that? How many of us have heard that you can't be a pastor unless you've gone to seminary? Where is that in the Bible? I don't remember the chapters where Peter went to seminary. I don't remember the chapters uh, where the fishermen went to college and gained their education before they followed Christ. It might be a helpful idea, it might be a good concept, it might be a good bit of wisdom, but it is not a biblically founded fact, right? So why do these rules exist in so many different areas? The truth is that as humans, we kind of crave a simple set of rules, right? As humans, we want something that is easy to understand, that can be put in our pocket, and that we can kind of know, okay, not this, but I can do pretty much anything else. We like to have the freedom of having this small, defined don't list, so we can have a world of do's. This is not usually how Jesus works. This is not usually how Christ operates. Why? Why does God not usually operate this way? Because number one, it is too simple. Number two, it is too impersonal. And number three, it is too isolated. Nowhere in the Bible do we see God give a set of rules as a substitute for having a relationship with him. In fact, one group of people in the Bible ran into trouble because they leaned more on the rules than having a relationship with Christ. Can anybody think who this group might be? The Pharisees, yeah. The Pharisees had a lot of knowledge of the rules. And in fact, they're a really fun example because they had more rules than the Bible had because they set up the rules that they were not to break. And then they set up rules around those rules to make sure that they weren't in the place or time to break those rules. And then they set more rules around those rules so that they wouldn't have the things in their possession to execute that sin if they were in the right place at that wrong time and ultimately it was to not trample that first law. But they got to the point where they had thousands of laws and most were not given by God. Most were invented by them to keep themselves from running afoul of that one set of rules. And they got so obsessed with rules that where did that lead them? To crucifying Jesus. When God finally did show up, when the Messiah did show up on earth, how did they react to him? Poorly. Very, very poorly. Why? Because he didn't follow their rules. Why? Because he never set those rules. We need to make sure that we are leaning on a relationship with Jesus not simple rules in our lives and as we move into dating, right? Some of us might desire to know that we are safe. That's why we like rules. Other of this, others of those, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. Some of us want to feel safe by having those rules and some of us want to be able to bend those rules as far as we can, right? That's why the Bible doesn't give us a set of rules in this department because God wants to be an active part of this aspect of our lives, now, the truth is, again, <clears throat> that when we look at Christian dating, um, we need to make a really profound step away from just secular dating when we start to think about how it's supposed to take place and what it's supposed to look like and what's supposed to transpire, right? If we think that dating is just, Christian dating is just dating with another word attached to the front of it, and maybe like two different rules involved, we're really, really off track. In fact, Christian dating is unlike any other dating, and I'll tell you guys why. Christian dating is between two people 
who have hopefully already engaged in a lifelong commitment, in a very serious commitment, in a very serious relationship between them and God. So while you may have a secular couple who comes together and just makes it work, because you know what? They're willing to work with one another, willing to bend where things need to be bent, willing to cooperate so that everything works out and they just kind of make it work. Christians have a little bit more to think about because God has an opinion of how we should carry ourselves. God has an opinion on what our spouse should be like. God has an opinion on how we should treat them. And God is not going to leave the relationship once we're married. He's going to continue to direct it. So Christian dating is not just between two parties. It's between three. It's between you and God and this person that you might be considering to date and God and then you and them. Because really what you're doing is not trying to engage in a brand new relationship with just you and them. You're trying to invite them into your relationship with God. You're trying to invite them to live life alongside you. And the life that you are supposed to be living at that point is one that serves God. So what we want to look at, guys, is not rules for dating, but three things that should help us to walk through this process with honor, respect, and understanding about what we are doing. And hopefully this should add some clarity as to whether or not you're dating the right person. I believe in you guys. I believe in you guys. This is not aimed at anybody. Number one, do not allow dating to be your hope for finding identity and becoming complete. Let me explain what I mean. There's a huge temptation to believe that we are incomplete as people without a spouse. It is a natural temptation, right? Many of us feel that without a significant other, we are missing a huge piece and that we will not be happy until that piece is added into our lives. We live in a culture that rolls its eyes at rom-com movies, right? When they come out, we're just like, all right, whatever, so cheesy. But we really do as a culture also buy into the mentality we find in those rom-com movies. We picture ourselves, ladies, as the sensitive and shy and maybe eccentric girl, right? Who's really bubbly and really nice underneath, who's just really misunderstood. And we just need to run into that guy who gets us, right? Who will finally understand us for who we really are. Then suddenly everything will work, right? Or as the dude, perhaps as a gentleman, we believe that really we have a heart of gold and we have so much to offer people, but they just don't know. They've never taken the time to get to know us, to open that door and experience that heart of gold and who we really are underneath. And if they gave us that experience, the doors would open. Their eyes would open to just what they've been missing out on, how good we would treat them. And maybe then the society would understand that we are worthy. We are valuable, right? It's a totally cheesy concept, but again, people take this subconsciously very seriously. Why? Because as people, <laughs> a huge portion of our identity can become wrapped up in the topic of finding a partner, not seeking just partnership, but validity. We want to be valid to people. We want to be valid to somebody else. We want someone else to see and acknowledge our value so that we can believe in our own value. And in that way, we think we're incomplete. We think that if we had that mirror 
if we had that person who said, you know what, you're right, you are really great, that suddenly things would change, right? We believe that we are missing a single ingredient that will change our lives to suddenly have this great value that we've always wanted it to, right? We're missing a single ingredient that will so change our lives that the mere thought of that other person, that other ingredient, will power us through our worst days, that they will somehow heal all of our hurts with their love, and that they will love all the parts of us that no one else does. And they will always put us in a good mood, no matter how bad things are going. The truth is, no. They're not going to love the fact that you've been video games for three days, locked in your room with Cheeto dust all over, and haven't showered. They're not going to love that aspect about you. No one should appreciate, about that you, uh, appreciate that about you. They should be pushing you towards growth. right? The truth is, no one can just heal us by loving us enough. Christians have to realize that if we're looking for that in somebody else, we're misplacing it, right? These hopes are too grandiose. We're asking too much. And what it reveals is, just like this video clearly pointed out, we're selfish about it. We desire someone who is far better than we are. Would we be able to offer back in equal kinds the kind of things and the amount of things that we would be asking this person to do for us? No. In this is a heart of selfishness. This is not, in fact, looking for a spouse. This is looking for a savior. This is idolatry in the life of a Christian. This is us looking for a savior in the population around us, thinking that we will be satisfied if we lay our lives down before them. There's a person who fits this need, but his name is Jesus, and he is not currently here on earth, physically. And he can heal those hurts, and he can change your mood for the better, and he can give you the strength to work through the worst days if you let him. But as Christians, we need to understand that that is properly said, again, at the feet of God, not a gentleman or gentlewoman that we might meet. Our hope for identity and completeness, and again, validity, cannot be found in our relationship with another imperfect and impaired person. Instead, it must be found in our relationship with a perfect and fit God. Even my own opinion of myself must die and be replaced with what God tells me I am. Not only will you not find that person, but in pursuit of that, every person who will give you a chance will disappoint you unless you adjust that bar. You will sabotage any chance at having a healthy relationship. And even if you did run across that perfect person that Jesus had for you, they won't measure up. They won't measure up. If we wish to date successfully, then we must start implementing the first and most important ingredient, commitment. We must be committed to our relationship, the one that we're already in our relationship with Jesus, and allow that relationship to form our identity and our value so that we do not go seek it out in the world. Ephesians 3 verses 16 through 19 says this on the topic. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, that strength we're talking about. So that Jesus may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together 
with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be, what, filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. And Colossians 2 verse 9 through 10 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every authority. I'm sorry, head over every power and authority. If our identity is found in Christ and his opinion of us is the one that matters most, then we will have that strength. We will have that validity. We will have that love that we so crave in our lives. And not just in part, but in fullness. Jesus is the person who will be the one, again, who heals our wounds. Maybe even in tandem with someone that you love, encouraging you to continue on. But he is the only one who can do the heavy lifting. Jesus is the one who needs to be the one who brings value to your life, and he needs to be your strength to make it through life. And I say this part about God needing to be our strength because guess what? If someone else is our strength and is the reason why we continue going, keep hoping, and behave ourselves because they deserve us to be so well-behaved, they deserve the best, then guess what? When they fall even this much short, how will we treat them? If they're the only reason that we behave ourselves and we do not behave ourselves because Christ has asked us to, if we do not live virtuously because God has commanded us to and because God loves us perfectly and we place that on somebody else, then we will turn on them. And when they're in a moment of need and not giving us what we need selfishly, we will not support them. We will make their lives worse. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to listen to more messages like this, you can find us on Spotify and iTunes by searching for Thousand Hills Podcast. Thank you for listening to and supporting this ministry of Thousand Hills Church.